Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 201, The World Flyers in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about the first pilots to successfully fly around the world. I've been a big fan of aviation history since my Uncle Glenn used to tell me stories about his time as a test pilot before World War II, his many crashes and narrow escapes, and his experiences flying B-17s in combat over Europe. The early 20th century was a time for many aviation firsts, and one of those firsts dropped into Boston for three exciting days. Five months after they started their journey in California, the Army Air Service pilots who made the first flight around the world were expected to touch down on U.S. soil for the first time here in Boston 96 years ago this week. But before we talk about the world flyers, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a recent podcast episode from Stuff You Missed in History Class. On September 2nd, they released an episode about Captain Joshua Slocum, who was the first person to sail around the world alone. Slocum first went to sea 35 years before his attempted circumnavigation, leaving Nova Scotia at the age of 16. Over the years, he met and married an American woman living in Australia, and the pair sailed together for 13 years, raising seven children at sea, four of whom lived to adulthood. After his first wife died in 1884, Slocum remarried and began calling Boston home, while continuing to sail between the U.S. East Coast and Brazil. I had never read about the time in Joshua Slocum's life before his solo voyage before, and hosts Tracy and Holly do a great job describing this period. You'll be left wishing that you'd met his first wife, Jenny, who seemed able to do it all, holding off mutineers at gunpoint with one hand, playing piano with the other hand, teaching Sunday school with a third hand, and giving birth at sea unassisted with, well, I guess that wasn't a hand. All that's to say that Joshua Slocum was a master mariner and experienced navigator, so when he announced in 1895 that he was going to sail a small vessel around the world alone, it didn't sound as crazy as it would if you or I said it. He bought a small sloop near New Bedford that had been used for oyster fishing, and spent more than a year overhauling it and fitting it out for long-distance sailing. Then, as he wrote in his 1898 memoir, Sailing Alone Around the World, At last, the time arrived to weigh anchor and to get to sea in earnest. I had resolved on a voyage around the world, and as the wind on the morning of April 24, 1895 was fair, At noon, I weighed anchor, set sail, and filled away from Boston, where the spray had been moored snugly all winter. The twelve o'clock whistles were blowing just as the sloop shot ahead under full sail. A short board was made up the harbor on the port tack, then coming about, she stood seaward with her boom well off to port and swung past the ferries with lively heels. A photographer on the outer pier at East Boston got a picture of her as she swept by, her flag at the peak throwing its folds clear. Since the main story this week is about the first people to circumnavigate the globe by air, it only seems appropriate to feature the first solo circumnavigation in the book club. It's amazing to think that Slocum made his journey in 1895, returning to the East Coast in just over three years, 
and at the time he was traveling in a rebuilt oyster schooner and expressing skepticism about steam power. Less than 30 years later, the World Flyers would tackle a similar journey as a team of eight, and their vessels were neither sailboats nor steamboats, but aeroplanes. If we think technology is changing quickly today, we haven't seen anything like the early 20th century. In the show notes this week, I'll link to Slocum's memoir, a picture of the spray sweeping by with her flag throwing its folds clear, and to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class, so you can learn more about the sailor Slocum and his solo circumnavigation. For the upcoming event this week, we have an embarrassment of riches. Three different talks that will highlight several past podcast guests and podcast subjects. First up, we have a Lowell lecture from the BPL at 6 p.m. on September 15th. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to finish the Boston Marathon with an official bib. Famously being photographed as race official Jock Semple tried to snatch the number from her chest. She was one of the subjects of our 127th episode, plus we talked about her with guest Bill Rogers in episode 187. She'll be taking part in the BPL's Contested Perspectives series. Here's how the library describes it. In 1967, Catherine Switzer became the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon as a numbered entrant. During her run, race official Jock Semple attempted to stop Switzer and grab her official bib. However, he was shoved to the ground by Switzer's boyfriend, Thomas Miller, who was running with her, and she completed the race. It was not until 1972 that women were allowed to run the Boston Marathon officially. Fifty years later, Catherine Switzer successfully ran the Boston Marathon again at age 70. She'll join the library's virtual talk to discuss these barrier-breaking moments on the race course and in life. The next day, September 16th, our guests from episode 192 will also be giving a virtual talk via the library. A People's Guide to Greater Boston authors Joseph Nevins, Sarin Mudliar, and Eleni McCrackis will be talking about their Radicals Travel Guide to Boston. If you missed our interview with Joseph and Sarin, or if you're still mad that Eleni got left out, this can be your introduction to the guide. And finally, we have an event from Revolutionary Spaces, which operates Old South Meeting House and the Old State House. Back in episode 174, the organization's president and CEO, Nat Shidley, talked to us about the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, and he introduced Reflecting Addicts, the organization's year of programming remembering the most famous massacre victim. This event will start at 4 p.m., and it's a panel discussion that features Carrie Greenwich, biographer of William Monroe Trotter and our guest in episode 183. Here's how Revolutionary Spaces describes this edition of Reflecting Addicts. Addicts, a man of many worlds, unpacks what we know about Crispus Addicts' time and place. He lived in a world where many people were descended from both Native and African peoples that had much in common, including enslavement at the hands of white colonists. With this background, Addicts would have had a deep understanding of British oppression and how his community fought back. And as a mariner going through the port of Boston, he would have encountered people both black and white, making the case for liberty and freedom in louder and more certain terms. Join us for a lively discussion about Attic's Afro-Indian community, and reflect on the experiences he might have had that informed his thinking about resistance and protest, and ultimately brought him to King Street on the night of the Boston Massacre. 
I know it's a lot to keep straight, so we'll make sure to include the registration links for all three talks in this week's show notes. We'll also have a link to the Stuff You Missed in History class episode about Joshua Slocum's solo trip around the world. You can find all the links you need at hubhistory.com slash 201. Before I move on with the show, I want to stop and say thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. I'll let you in on a secret. One of the reasons I chose to talk about the World Flyers this week was to give myself a much-needed recovery week. Last week's show was incredibly difficult and time-consuming to put together, with just the process of recording and editing running over 14 hours of work. That doesn't count any of the time I spent researching and writing the episode either. But that's simply an investment of time. Creating a podcast also takes an investment of money. Our Patreon sponsors commit to giving us $2, $5, or even $10 a month to offset the monetary cost of making the show. If you'd like to become a sponsor, just go to patreon.com hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thank you very much for supporting the show. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Exactly five months after they left Seattle and headed northwest up the Pacific coast, the three surviving U.S. Army Air Service planes appeared over Boston. The Washington, D.C. Evening Star may have gone somewhat overboard describing their reception here. Battle-scarred heroes, fresh from the field and blood of battle, never were as popular in Boston tonight as the six American Army officers who landed here this afternoon in the concluding stages of their flight around the globe. The U.S. Army and the city of Boston had a grand reception planned for the group, who were known variously as the World Flyers or the Magellans of the Sky, as they were landing back on American soil for the first time since leaving Alaska for Japan on May 15th. On September 5th, General Mason Patrick, the chief of the U.S. Army Air Service, led a sortie of 11 Army planes northeast to meet the incoming aircraft. They were accompanied by a radio plane that broadcast news coverage of the flight to eager listeners on the ground. They were forced to turn back by heavy fog near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Coming from the north, the World Flyers had been forced to turn back by the same fog bank, landing at Mere Point, Maine, just across Casco Bay from Portland. Even that wasn't actually their first landing in North America. That honor went to the delightfully named Icy Tickle, a tiny Canadian island on the Labrador Sea. The next day, though, the weather cleared, and the flyers made for Boston, where they received a hero's welcome. The Washington, D.C. Evening Star reported, Boston did more than open its arms to those six officers. It opened its heart and soul. Nothing was too good for the airmen. And Boston, although deprived of the honor of being the first place on American soil for the Flyers to land, cast all sulkiness aside that appeared to have arisen this morning when the three Douglas World cruisers, Chicago, Boston 2, and New Orleans, appeared over the city. As the Associated Press report on their arrival in Boston on September 6th makes clear, they got the reception that had been planned for the 5th with General Patrick's wing of support planes accompanying the World Flyers for their 125-mile hop into Boston Harbor. The Flyers reached the end of their Boston objective when they arrived over the harbor. 
Three olive drab crafts, escorted by a dozen land planes, circled around the harbor like giant birds. On land and among the harbor craft, pandemonium broke loose. The expedition that was now concluding over Boston had begun at the Douglas Aircraft Company's headquarters in Santa Monica, California, on March 17th. Four purpose-built Douglas World Cruiser heavy biplanes, christened the Seattle, the Chicago, the New Orleans, and the Boston, took off from Clover Field at 9.32 a.m., each carrying a pilot and a mechanic or co-pilot. From Santa Monica, they'd fly to Sacramento for a night, then to Vancouver, before being outfitted for ocean landings and long-distance travel at an army base in Seattle. On April 6th, the expedition formally began, with all four seaplanes taking off from Lake Washington and speeding north toward Alaska. At roughly the same time, British, Italian, Portuguese, and French teams were launching similar round-the-world attempts. Except the Americans, every team would fly from west to east, leaving the Arctic crossing of the Bering Sea to late summer. The Americans decided to go the other way, taking their open cockpit biplanes into the Alaskan spring in April. While the song says, when it's springtime in Alaska, it's 40 below, the Americans wouldn't have to deal with temperatures much below 17 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, remember, these were open cockpit planes. Barely three weeks after the expedition left the city of Seattle, disaster struck for the first time. The plane Seattle disappeared into the mountains during a blizzard on April 30th. After eight days, the rest of the group was forced to give up waiting and move on. Though the pilot and co-pilot eventually hiked out after ten days and found their way to a fish cannery on the coast, cold, sunburned, and snowblind, but otherwise unharmed. The Chicago, the Boston, and the New Orleans pressed on, traveling up the coast of Alaska, then island-hopping down the Aleutian chain. They survived a perilous crossing over the Bering Strait and caused a minor diplomatic incident when they were forced to land in the Soviet Union by dangerous weather. They were received by throngs of thousands in city after city across Japan and China. In today's Vietnam, the Chicago experienced engine trouble and had to make an emergency landing in a tiny, remote lagoon. When the rest of the pilots found them a few days later, locals towed the disabled plane 25 miles to Hue, behind hand-paddled sampans. After a new engine was rushed, delivered, and installed, the mission continued. The three remaining planes followed the coastline until finally reaching Kolkata. In Kolkata, the crew removed their plane's pontoons and switched them out with wheels. The journey continued over an inland route that led the six pilots over today's Pakistan, Iran, and Iraq, where they experienced the highest temperature of the expedition. One of the officers later told the Boston Globe, It sure was hot. Once, we landed in the Mesopotamian desert. The temperature while flying had only been about 100 degrees, but in the desert, it was 145 degrees. You can imagine how long we stayed. We drank gallons of water, but it just leaked out through the pores. The heat was bad all the way from Shanghai to Constantinople. In a 2010 article about the world flight, Rob Crotty described the sprint from Iraq to today's Istanbul. 
From Baghdad to Constantinople, the flyers traversed land marked with the ravages of war. All were ancient sites worthy of a lifetime of exploration. Persia, Iraq, Syria. But Smith allowed no time in their schedule for undue delays. They all had their eye on Paris and were determined to make it there by Bastille Day. They succeeded, racing across the new states that had been created out of the ashes of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Romania, Hungary, and Austria. After a hop across Weimar, Germany, they arrived at Le Bourget Aerodrome in Paris on July 14th, Bastille Day. For many of the world flyers, the last time they'd seen France was from the sky, while fighting the Red Baron and the Fliegertruppen. This time, Crowdy says, Throngs of Frenchmen and Americans cheered their arrival. General Blackjack Pershing greeted them, as did the French president, who escorted them to the ongoing Olympic Games. After being fully wined and dined in Paris, the World Flyers turned toward home. They flew to the north of England, where the support crew swapped their plane's wheels out for the floats again, and swapped out the engines and all the planes. They were also forced to wait almost two weeks for favorable weather so they could begin the incredibly dangerous crossing of the North Atlantic. They went from Scotland to the Orkney Islands, then turned toward the Faroe Islands in Iceland. On their first attempt, the planes got separated in a storm. The Chicago and the Boston returned to the Orkneys, anxiously awaiting news of the New Orleans. Days later, they got word that it had arrived safely in Iceland, so they made another attempt. On August 4, 1924, the Boston suddenly started leaking oil and had to land on the rough waters of the remote North Atlantic. Rob Crowdy's article has a wonderfully dramatic description of the rescue effort that began as the crew of the Chicago circled the down plane and then went to find help. Some hundred miles off, they dropped a letter at a village telling of the downed aircraft and then shot toward the nearest Navy destroyer, Billingsby. Without a place to land and with no radio, Arnold would have to drop a note on the ship's deck explaining what had happened to the Boston. He only had two notes, and if he missed his mark, there was no telling how long it might take to mount a rescue. The ship was traveling nearly 20 knots. Calculating the right time to drop the message to the deckhands below was impossible. Smith circled. Arnold aimed and dropped the first message. It missed. He tied the second message to his own life preserver, aimed, and dropped the last and final note they had explaining the whereabouts of the Boston. It missed, too. Understanding the panic of the pilots above, one of the Billingsby sailors dived into the frigid waters and retrieved the message. The captain read it immediately and singled that he understood with three blasts of the whistle. The crew radioed nearby ships to the emergency landing, including the Richmond and then set off to find the flyers. The Billingsby shot off in such hot pursuit of the flyers' coordinates that she burned the paint right off her smokestacks, according to Thomas. Hours later, adrift in the cold ocean, a trawler had spotted flares shooting up from the downed plane. Do you want any help? the skipper yelled. Well, I should say we do, Wade replied, flummoxed at the question. As the trawler unsuccessfully attempted to tow the Boston to land, the Navy cruiser Richmond arrived. The sea rolled tremendously, 
And as the crew attempted to move the world cruiser, one of the wings dipped under a wave and popped like a fragile bone. Still, with the Richmond there, they could hoist the damaged plane onto its decks, return to Kirkwall, and finish the flight after some repairs. But in the heavy sea, the tackle was wrenched loose from the main mast, and the plane crashed into the water, destroying the Boston's pontoons. A second attempt was made to hoist the plane on board, but the weather grew too violent to hoist the plane. The only hope now was to tow the Boston in, and so the Richmond made a straight line for land. All night long, they worked toward the coast, and all night long, the crew watched their plane, expecting the worst. Exhausted and with nothing left to do, the pilots went to sleep. A mile offshore, just after 5 a.m., they were awakened. The Boston had capsized. They were out of the race. A month after the plane Boston went down, the Boston Globe reported on preparations to receive the two surviving world flyers. After a morning where enthusiasm was dampened by cold weather and the previous day's false start, by early afternoon, 40,000 spectators were crowded around East Boston Airport, waiting for the world flyers to arrive. With perhaps as many as a million lining the shore along Boston Harbor, hoping to get a glimpse of the planes as they came in. The Washington Evening Star described the plane's approach. Your correspondent was on top of an eight-story building of the first core area across the harbor and saw the plane so familiar since Kirkwall before the masses huddled on the ground at the airport. As they approached closer and closer, the word passed like lightning that the planes were coming, and all Boston dropped everything and gave rise to noise. Whistles, sirens, automobile klaxons, and vocal cheers combined to send up a welcome to the planes in the air, which, unfortunately at the time, the pilots were unable to hear because of the noises of the Liberty Motors, that historians again recorded. Now they seemed to drop down in altitude. They were about 500 feet, Smith in the lead, Wade on the left, and Nelson on his right. Satisfied he had let the town know of their arrival, Smith cut the gun and dived for the water in the vicinity of the crowds in the official barge. And exactly at two o'clock, sank his 1,000-pound pontoons in the waters of Boston Harbor, for the second time in American waters in as many days. One minute later, Wade followed, and the third minute, Nelson settled down. They taxied out a short distance to their moorings, where Arnold, Harding, and Ogden made the planes fast, and immediately a large number of little boats went scurrying to the scene, completely surrounding the planes from the view of the spectators. Now, wait a minute. That clearly describes three planes coming into Boston. If the Seattle crashed in Alaska, and the Boston sank in the North Atlantic, shouldn't that have left only the Chicago and the New Orleans to finish the history-making flight? After the Boston sank, the New Orleans had to be hauled out of the water in Reykjavik, Iceland for more repairs. The expedition would be paused for nearly three weeks as repairs progressed. The longest open water crossing followed, 500 miles from Iceland to Greenland. In the last hundred miles, the planes were forced to descend to wavetop level to avoid a storm literally dodging icebergs higher than the planes were as they came up in the windscreens at 90 miles an hour. The ice caused further delays in Greenland, with the Navy cruising up and down the coast in search of enough open water to allow the planes to touch down, 
refuel, and take off again. These weeks of delays gave the Douglas Aircraft Company time to rush another plane to meet the expedition. The New Orleans, Chicago, Boston, and Seattle were the only four world cruisers ever manufactured. They were based on a torpedo bomber design, but extensively modified for long-range service. The wings and rudder were lengthened. The fuselage was upgraded from fabric to steel. Auxiliary water and oil tanks were added, and the liquid-cooled 12-cylinder Liberty engines got beefier Tropics-ready cooling systems. The biggest change, however, was the fuel system. Fuel tanks were added inside the wings, and the entire bomb bay was converted to a fuel tank. The total capacity was extended from 115 gallons to 644 gallons, a crucial change for the long stretch of ice-choked water on the way to Greenland. While the Douglas World Cruisers were being manufactured in Santa Monica, the crews were training on a prototype aircraft in Langley, Virginia. From early February 1924 until just before the expedition began in March, they flew a converted torpedo bomber getting a feel for how the world cruisers would handle in the air. Now, five months later, that prototype was rechristened the Boston II, and rushed to the harbor at Pick 2 Nova Scotia to wait for the New Orleans and the Chicago. If Boston was going to be the first American city to lay eyes on the returning world flyers, they certainly couldn't show up without the Boston, or at least the Boston II. On August 8th, the replacement plane passed through Boston stopping briefly at Squanum Point Naval Air Station in Quincy to refuel. The Boston Globe reported, The cruising plane Boston II, which at the request of President Coolidge is being sent to Pictou, Nova Scotia, to replace the wrecked plane of Lieutenant Wade, that he might continue the world-girdling flights, arrived at the Squanum Aviation Field here at 12.20 this afternoon. The plane carries spare parts for the Boston and for other planes in the world flight. It'll remain at Squantum overnight, and will be refueled and examined in preparation for the hop to Bar Harbor, Maine, the next lap of the journey to pick to. Finally, the skies cleared and the ice broke in the fjords of Greenland, and the world flyers were able to take off toward home. On the last day of August, they set down at Icy Tickle, and three days later they met up with the Boston Two. The Boston Globe describes the reception the crews of the three aircraft got from their countrymen in Boston. It is impossible to describe the din at the airport. Whistles of craft in the harbor, thousands of auto horns and sirens. A battery of aircraft guns manned by coast artillery is barking in salute. They are circling around and around just above the main ship channel. A deafening din of whistles, sirens, and shrieking voices greeted the birdmen as their craft came to rest in the peaceful harbor waters for their first official stop in the homeland after a 22,000-mile journey about the globe. Horns were blown full-throated, the crowds cheered, and the battery on the airport boomed out a salute of 21 guns, the presidential salute. As soon as the three planes were tied to the mooring buoys in Boston Harbor, a motor launch met the crews and brought them to the airport wharf, where they were met by Mayor Curley, Governor Cox, and a host of dignitaries. Before this receiving line could begin offering their congratulations, a radio reporter held out his handset and Lieutenant Lowell Smith, who commanded the expedition, was given a chance to say hi to his mother in California. Then the flyers were caught up in a whirlwind of activity. 
They were taken to hangars on the far side of the airport to sign the official visitor log, then driven back to the wharf and loaded back on the launch. It took them to the South Boston Army Base to be reunited with their wives and children. Then they were whisked away to the Copley Plaza Hotel, then the State House, then on to Parkman Bandstand on the Common. At the Common, Mayor James Michael Curley presented each of the aviators with a gold watch, saying it was, So you may all be on time in the future and gave them all the key to the city. There are addresses by the Governor, the Assistant Secretary of War, General Patrick of the Army Air Service, and the leaders of veterans groups. Finally, they were taken back to the Copley Plaza for a private dinner with their families and Army officials. One imagines they went to bed early, and the Globe reported that all the members of the crew requested 4 a.m. wake-up calls in order to oversee the repairs that would need to be made to their planes before flying out to New York. From their departure from Seattle to their arrival in Boston, the World Flyers have been supported by the U.S. Navy. 24 ships and 3,000 sailors had traveled a total of 37,000 nautical miles in the Pacific, Arctic, Indian, and Atlantic Oceans. They provided the pilots with food, fuel, spare parts, rescue when they ditched at sea, and a safe place to rest and make repairs. Now, however, the Flyers would take their leave of the Navy. At East Boston Airport, the 1,000-pound pontoons were removed from the planes and replaced with wheels for the trip down the East Coast to New York and Washington. They wouldn't need their floats flying over the American heartland and then up the West Coast from San Diego to Seattle. Along with the conversion from seaplane to landplane, repairs had to be made. Sunday, September 7th, would be taken up with 13 hours of repairs. The prototype Boston II had a water pump malfunction soon after joining the group, and the Chicago had been fighting a finicky oil pump. Both would be replaced here. Since its beginning, the expedition had gone through 20 replacement motors, though the ones that had been cached in Boston for a quick swap wouldn't be needed. Instead of replacing them, all three engines were rebuilt. The accounts I read didn't say so specifically, but given how often propellers were swapped out on the other legs of the journey, It's likely that most or all of the planes got fresh props in Boston. On September 8th, the World Flyers left Boston at noon. Taking off from land for the first time since England, they flew a lap over the harbor in East Boston in tight formation. Accompanied again by General Patrick and five planes, they flew over the Blue Hills, then to Providence, where the local escorts turned back. The World Flyers continued to New London, New Haven, and on to New York City. From there, it took 20 more days to reach the journey's end. Not because of engine trouble or bad weather, but because of all the parties they had to attend and the dignitaries they had to greet, starting with the President of the United States, former Massachusetts Governor Calvin Coolidge. By this time, every expedition to fly around the world launched by other countries had been forced to drop out, so there was no rush. They arrived in Seattle on September 28, 1924, exactly 175 days after their journey began. The six airmen who completed the journey were awarded the first Peacetime Distinguished Service Medal. The Chicago is now on display at the National Air and Space Museum. The New Orleans is at the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica. And the wreckage of the Seattle is in the collection of an aviation museum in Alaska. 
To learn more about the World Flyers and their stop in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 201. I'll have links to the articles from the Boston Globe, Washington, D.C. Evening Star, and other papers I used in preparing this episode, as well as the article about the flight by Rob Crotty for the National Archives. I'll include plenty of pictures of the aviators, both in Boston and throughout their journey, plus a newsreel film about the flight that shows the planes landing in Boston and the pilots being received by dignitaries. And, of course, I'll have links to information about our three upcoming events and the Stuff You Missed in History Class episode about Joshua Slocum, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs>